Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that you are God who speaks, uh, that we can relate to you, we can hear your voice. Uh, we thank you that you have spoken in the past uh, in so many different ways, in the prophets, um, and now you've spoken to us ultimately through your Son. Um, and we thank you uh, that your Spirit continues to speak to us uh, through this word uh, that you have given, uh, through that Spirit. Uh, and we pray that your Spirit will be working among us now. Uh, help us, we pray, as we look at your word. Uh, may your Spirit be pointing us to Christ, and may be, he be honored and glorified. Uh, may he strengthen me to preach your word rightly and in his power. Uh, and may he be working in each one of our hearts, uh, causing us to uh, understand your word and to respond rightly to you. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you wanted a contractor to build a house for you to live in, you'll need to give him some instructions first, wouldn't you? In fact, you probably need to get an architect to draw up your plans so the builders know what to do. And you will design your house to suit your lifestyle. You're not going to include a swimming pool if no one in your household swims. And you're not going to design a two-bedroom house if you've got five people in your family. In our passage today, God designs a dwelling place for himself among his people. It's like a temple, but it's mobile. Uh, so it can be packed up and taken on to the next place because God and his people are on a journey. And this mobile temple is called a tabernacle, which means a tent. Before I look at this, uh, let me remind you of the background and let me show you some structure uh, in the section we're looking at. Remember in our series on Exodus so far, we've seen how God has rescued his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He has brought them to Mount Sinai where he has given them the law uh, and we saw last week how God made a covenant with them uh, and the elders of Israel. And at the end of that time, God called Moses to come up the mountain. And he was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And these chapters that we're looking at today, chapters 25 to 31, tell us what God said to him in those 40 days. And we're going to cover it in the next 40 minutes. <laughs> but before we do that, let me show you this, the structure of the last part of Exodus, because it's a little bit like a sandwich. Now, which one shall I use? Use this one, huh? Because everyone can see this one. People over here can't see that. Okay, it's a bit like a sandwich. You won't be able to see what's written here, but it doesn't matter. All right? I'll put my glasses on, and I can see what's here. Okay, Exodus 25 to 31, that's what we're looking at today. That is like the bread on the top of the sandwich. Okay, and the, right, the last little bit of what we're looking at, uh, 31, 12 to 18 is like the butter here, all right? Next week, we're going to look at the meat in the sandwich. So make sure you come back next week for the meat, all right? This section here is about God's instructions to build the tabernacle. And this section here is a very short bit, but it's about the Sabbath. Then after the meat, you have a bit about the Sabbath again. And then you've got the building of the tabernacle following these instructions here. Right? So you see the structure? Uh, and what culminates at the end of chapter 40 is when the glory of God comes to fill the tabernacle. So today we're looking at that first slice of bread on the top, where Moses receives his detailed instructions for building the tabernacle and consecrating the priests to work in it. And interestingly enough, God speaks six times in this section about making the tabernacle, 
And the seventh time, he speaks about the Sabbath. Now, that reminds us of how he spoke in creation. And that may be a hint that the purpose of creation is being fulfilled in the building of the tabernacle. Remember in Genesis, the purpose of creation is fulfilled when God, what? He enjoys rest, isn't it? With his people in the Garden of Eden. And in the tabernacle, God is again going to dwell with his people. And once a week, on the Sabbath, they will enjoy rest together. It's a token of what they lost at the fall. Because you see, rest and relationship that God's people enjoyed with him in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, was disrupted when Adam and Eve sinned. When they turned against God and they rebelled, God expelled them from the garden. And it says back in Genesis 3 that he put the cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way back in to the tree of life. We can't get back in. But God's plan has always been to dwell with his people. And here in the instructions for this building of the tabernacle, we we see the next step in his plan. God is once again going to have a dwelling place among his people. It'll be bit like the Garden of Eden again. But because people are sinful, they won't have free access to the Holy God. The garden-like thing will be there, but they can't get in, at least not the whole way. But still, God is dwelling among his people, and there is relationship. Oh, let's get into the text now. The passage opens with God telling Moses to get contributions from the people. He says in verse 2 of chapter 25, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. This is not a tax. This is not a tithe. This is not a law. Donations for building the tabernacle must come from the heart. And the list of the things for donation are there in verse 3 to 7. There are precious metals and the colors in the fabric show it's going to be a very expensive tent. It's for royal use. And the purpose of it in verse 8 is very explicit. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary. All right? A sanctuary means a holy place. When it's Felix building, you say, sanctuary much. No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay? A sanctuary is a holy place. And so this is going to be a holy place for God to dwell in. I'll talk about more about sanctuary a little bit later on. But now, let me highlight what God says in verse 9. He says, you must make it exactly as I show you. Exactly according to the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. Because you see, how we relate to God, how we worship God is not something that we can make up. We can only approach Him on His terms in His way. Approaching Him, this is what the Old Testament teaches. And it's the same thing in the New Testament as well, isn't it? Approaching God on His terms in His way in the New Testament means coming to Him in Christ. We're not at liberty to make up our approach to God. No, 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 no. We come in Christ. We come through Christ. We come with Christ. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. And we worship God through him. Well, the first thing God tells Moses to make is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you might have heard about the Ark of the Covenant from the Indiana Jones movies, right? which, of course, is a fictional movie about the Ark. Uh, you see a picture coming up on the screen uh, uh, from the movie, I think that's Harrison Ford over there, right? And there's the there's the Ark of the as uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but here's a clearer picture of the Ark uh, from a much more reputable source, the ESV Study Bible. <laughs> uh, the Ark was actually a chest or a box. Uh, it's two and a half cubits long. So a cubit is from here to here. Okay, so two and a half cubits like that, like that, and then halfway halfway again. Huh? This is about like that. Okay. 
Uh, it's one and a half cubits high, so that one, and about halfway up there, so it's about like that, and the same thing wide. Right? It's made of acacia wood. It's a strong kind of wood found in those regions, and it's overlaid with gold. And there are rings. You can see rings on the side of the ark, and in those rings you put a pole to carry the ark. So the ark can be carried around without anybody touching it. And verse 16 says that inside the ark was the tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Other things came later, but at this point, it's just the tablets. The top of the ark is called the mercy seat in verse 17. In some translations, it's called the atonement cover. And on top of that cover, there are these two cherubim, uh, those angelic creatures that we heard about earlier. They spread their wings towards the mercy seat. Their faces face each other and the mercy seat. And God says to Moses in verse 22, here's what he says, There I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God is going to meet Moses there and he's going to speak to him. So, okay, here we are in the Old Testament. What's inside the ark? The ten words. What will God do when he meets Moses from the above the ark? He will speak. Right? The way God relates to his people is by speaking his word, isn't it? It's always been the case. From the garden, talk to Adam and Eve, and the guy says, okay, this one, any of this you can eat, this one you can't. Right? When he speaks to Abraham, he makes him promises. I'm going to do this. He speaks to Moses and the Israelites on Sinai. He speaks to Moses here. He's going to speak here. Right? He, speaks to, he, he, he speaks through the prophets uh, to warn people and tell them about the future. Ultimately, he speaks in the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus. And he continues to speak by his spirit through his word today. God relates to us by speaking his word. That's the kind of God he is. Well, the next thing uh, that's made in verse 23 to 30 is a table for bread. Uh, and the table is two cubits by a cubit and a half tall. So actually, it's quite low. Cubit, huh? one and a half. Okay, it's quite low, uh, but that's, uh, that's what it's like. Uh, and on the table, well, the table is still acacia wood overlaid with gold. Again, it's got rings, rings and the uh, poles to carry it uh, because these are holy, not to be touched. Uh, and they're going to use it to put plates and incense dishes and flagons and bowls for the drink offerings. So the various things they use for the offerings are kept on the table. They're not shown in the picture. Uh, but the bread of the presence uh, is put there regularly. And if you go on to Leviticus, you read that there are 12 loaves changed every day. And at the end of the day, the, 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 the priests uh, eat it. Only the priests eat it. Many years later, King David would eat some of this bread when he and his men were hungry and on a mission from God. And it's possible that when Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread, uh, he was teaching to ask us to God to provide for us like he provided for the priests on a daily basis on this, this bread. Uh, because as we shall see later, we are his priests. The next piece of furniture is the golden lampstand. Now, you can see it's made of gold. And it's all one piece. Right? And it's made to look like a flowering almond tree. Now, each branch has got three cups, uh, uh, almond flower blossoms, uh, and then there's four in the central branch. And the top, there's these uh, lamps. All right, so it's one, two, three, three on each side, three on this side, plus the central one, you get seven uh, lamps in all, perfectly complete uh, light. 
And because this tree stands in the tabernacle, many people think it looks back to the tree of life uh, in the Garden of Eden. Maybe right, not sure. Uh, but the thing the passage itself tells us about the lambs in verse 37 is that they are to give light. Uh, and the details must be followed exactly to what God said on the mountain. In chapter 26, God gives the instructions for making the tabernacle proper. And that's the tent which contains the, 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 the holy place and the most holy place. So it's 45 feet long, 15 feet this way, and 15 feet this way. Okay? So 15, 15, 45. Uh, it's made, you can see, with layers of cloth and skin. Uh, and the outside is this, is, this is wood overlaid with gold. And inside, <coughs> inside the, la- the, the, the layers, the, 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 the linen layers, are skillfully woven cherubim, as if to guard the way in so you can't get in. Right? There's no lateral light inside. You see that? And that's why you need the golden lampstand. There's the golden lampstand sitting there. All right? and, uh, and on the inside here is the most holy place. This one is... We know this is 15, this one's 15, and this way is also 15. It's one-third of the way through. And so it's exactly one-third of the way of the tent, and it's also a perfect cube. The only thing at this stage that's inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And we read elsewhere, in fact, it it got picked up in our Hebrews passage, that the priest could go into the holy place, but into the most holy place... Only the high priest can go, and only once a year, and only after elaborate sacrifices. Because there's a big veil between this holy place and the most holy place. And it's made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn with with cherubim carefully woven into it. That is the barrier between God and man. Again, like the garden, we've got the cherubim, haven't you? Guarding the way uh, into God's presence. And the corresponding temple, uh, curtain in the temple later on, that is the curtain that is torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus dies. Uh, because in the death of Jesus, our sin is dealt with. Jesus has taken our sin, our punishment, makes us clean, makes us holy, and so the curtain is no longer a barrier. The cherubim will no longer block the way. We have access to God through Jesus now. And one day, we'll be part of the new creation where we will live in God's presence forever, where Eden is truly restored and indeed surpassed. So back to the tabernacle, and you see just outside this most holy place, I mentioned to you there's the, um, there's the golden lampstand, uh, and over here is the table uh, for the bread, which we talked about earlier. Well, the next section in uh, chapter 27 Uh, And the first eight verses of chapter 27, God tells Moses to make a bronze altar. Here's a bronze altar. Now, an altar, what is an altar? An altar is a place to make a sacrifice, isn't it? Right? Uh, This bronze altar is where they make burnt offering sacrifices. It's it's wooden, but it's overlaid with bronze. And it's pretty big. Up, it's it's, uh, five cubits wide, five cubits long. So five... It's five of these, right? It's quite big. Five, 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 sorry, five, five, and three high. Uh, 
Uh, and you can see it's got horns in the corners and poles to carry it. In the next slide, you can see uh, the altar being used as a burnt offering. And there's the priest there uh, using the altar for the, for the burnt offering. And in the next slide, you can see the location of the burnt offering altar, the bronze altar, in the court of the tabernacle. So there you've got the holy place and the most holy place. There you've got the altar, uh, and there's the rest of the tabernacle, which we'll look at in a, in a minute. Now, when we come to the New Testament, well, there's no more altars, is there? Because in Christ, the one true sacrifice has already been made. There's no sacrifices for sins left. In fact, if we try to offer sacrifices to atone for sin, then we are blaspheming Christ because we're saying that his sacrifice is not enough. The only sacrifice that we have in the New Testament is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not, in re- not to take away sin, but in response to God's grace. And what do we offer? We offer our very selves as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. And so the only altar that we have is the one true altar, which is the cross. Now, that is the altar on which the one true perfect sacrifice was made. And that's why I always tell people, don't call the communion table an altar. All right? The altar is a place where you make a sacrifice. The table is a place where you have a meal. When we have the Lord's Supper, we are not making a sacrifice. We're sharing together in a meal to remember the sacrifice that Christ made. Uh, and so, that is the altar. That one we sometimes have here is the table. Okay, court of the tabernacle. Verses 9 to 19 of chapter, 20, uh, of chapter 27 uh, deals with the court of the tabernacle. The tabernacle court is big. Right, it's 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. That's 11,000 square feet. A normal shop house in KL is about 22 by 70. So this means it's about the size of seven shop houses. Right? One, two, three. Okay, like that. Uh, notice the courtyard's got high walls around it. Uh, and the walls are wooden frames with silver or bronze. Uh, and the curtain is, is made with fine linen. Right? It shows the separation between uh, sinners and the holy God. Uh, and, but you see, as, as you go further from the most holy place, then the, the price of the materials comes down. All right? um, uh, even though God is going to dwell with his people, there's still a distance, isn't there? All right? There's a blocking there. Now, the door to the courtyard faces the front of the tent. The sinful worshiper enters. The presence of the holy God has to go past the altar. Right? Because only through the shedding of blood. Uh, can you come in? Uh, the utensils are made from bronze, not gold, because it's outside the holy, most holy place. Uh, and yeah, so everything else happens in there. Now, you remember the lamp uh, in the most holy place. Uh, you can't see it, I don't think. Uh, the one I showed you that was inside there when it was a little bit bigger. Right? Uh, in verse 20, Moses tells um, uh, the Israelites to bring olive oil to keep it burning. Uh, and Aaron and his sons and the priests have to tend it from evening to morning to make sure it stays on. It's got to always be on. Right, now we go to chapter 28. In chapter 28, God tells Moses about the holy garments for the priests. Now, Israel is meant to be a kingdom of priests, isn't it? Uh, but in chapter 28, verse 1, God identifies Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons from among the people of Israel to serve him as priests. And he gives them the name. And he commands, in verse 2, for holy garments to be made for glory and for beauty. These are special clothes uh, for the priests to be made when they're working in the tabernacle uh, or later on in the temple. All right? So special robe, special turban, special breastpiece, 
uh, A4, even special underwear. Right? We won't go into the details of that today. Right? Any of that. Right? But I do want to note that the names of the sons of Israel were engraved on these precious stones that were carried uh, on the priest's shoulders. Right? And he would bear them before the Lord. Right? They're also written on the stones which are what makes called the ephod, which is on his heart. Right? And he would always, so that God's people would always be remembered before God by the priest coming in. Right? Because for the Old Testament priest, he represented Israel to God. He stood before God on behalf of Israel and he carried their names, right? the names of those tribes uh, before God. Now, who represents us in the presence of God? Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, the book of Hebrews tells us that our high priest is Jesus himself. Right? He represents us before the Father. He offered the sacrifice once and for all. Uh, he's a permanent high priest. He represents us always. He always intercedes for us. He's able to save us completely. Right? If you're going to go to court, you want a really good lawyer to represent you. Right? Swaran's not here today. Never mind. Right? But before the throne of God above, we are represented by a perfect priest, the Lord Jesus. Well, in chapter 29, we read about the consecration of the priests. Uh, when a priest is consecrated, three things happen. First of all, in verse 4, he is washed with water. And then in verse 5, he is dressed in special clothes that he's meant to wear. In verse 7, he is anointed with oil. It's poured on his head. And then in verse 10 onwards, all kinds of sacrifices are offered. We won't go into the details today. And the reason for the sacrifices, of course, is that the priest himself is sinful. Right? Jesus, our great high priest, never sinned, will never need sacrifices offered for him. On the other hand, we've mentioned before that all, our, all of us, all believers, are priests in a secondary sense, isn't it? Right? The New Testament tells us that we are a kingdom of priests. Uh, we are royal priesthood. Um, and how do we become priests? Well, we were washed with pure water. We were cleansed from our sins by the death of Jesus. We were anointed. We were given the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christ offered the sacrifice once and for all to pay for our sins. And so there is a sense in which all of us are doing the priestly work. All of us are representing God to the world by proclaiming his word. All of us are bringing the world to him in prayer. And not just some of us, but all of us. Now, that is the, the priesthood of all believers. And just while we're on the subject of priesthood, uh, just as a side, there's something we should probably clarify to avoid confusion. Now, we've seen that the priesthood uh, of... Uh, we, we, we've seen that in, in the Old Testament, we had the, 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 these priests, uh, and we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and he's the great high priest, and in a secondary sense, all of us are priests. And the New Testament knows no other class of priest. So, what happens to people like me who are called priests? What does that mean? Do we lose our job? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, I'm not a priest in the sense that Christ is. If I try and do that, then that's blasphemy, isn't it? Because I don't offer sacrifices for sin. I don't represent you to God in the sense that I'm no closer to God than any one of you who is in Jesus. I'm a priest in the same sense as you are in that we are all priests. We pray for each other. We offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We declare God's praises in the world. So why am I called a priest and you're not? Well, the answer to that is, come with, uh, on the screen, we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and passages like this. 
Right? Let me read that to you. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so they may stand in fear. So there are some people in the early church called elders. All right? They're not priests in the Old Testament sense, nothing to do with priesthood. Uh, their job is to direct the affairs of the church uh, and to be involved in preaching and teaching. Uh, they were to be paid for their work. They were to be safeguarded against false accusations. But their ministry is a public ministry, and so if they sin, they were to rebuke, be rebuked publicly. Now, the Greek word for elders is the word presbyteros. Right? That is different from the word for priest, using the Old Testament word, which is eros. Right? It's a different word. Um, this presbyteros in the English comes across as presbyter. Right? Uh, and a short form for that in English is priest. Right? And so at the Reformation, uh, when the Anglican denomination broke free from the idea that priests did the kind of things the Old Testament priests did, what we did is we kept the term priests because people were used to it, but on the understanding that it's short for presbyter, not the Old Testament kind of priest or priest in the, in the, in the biblical sense. Now, does that make sense? Okay, it's a bit confusing until it's properly explained. All right, so it's okay to call me a priest as long as you understand it correctly. Right? But if you don't understand it correctly, then if you think that I'm like the Old Testament priests, which uh, that would be a big problem, right? Because that's the role of Jesus, and you cannot allow one to You can't fight against the boss, right? He's, 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 he's Jesus. Okay. Uh, next one uh, is chapter 30, Exodus 30 now. As the altar of incense. Right? So here, God is going back to the items in the tabernacle. Right? And the next item in the tabernacle here is the altar of incense. The altar of incense, one cubit in length and breadth, two cubit in height. Uh, again, it's acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Why is it gold? Because it's going to be in the, in the, in the holy place. Right? In fact, it's going to be just in front of that curtain before the most holy place. Right? Uh, again, there's rings and poles for transport. It's not to be touched. And God tells Moses to tell Aaron to burn incense on it every morning and every evening. Right? He also warns him in verse 9 not to offer any unauthorized incense or any other kind of offering. Once again, not at liberty to make things up in the worship of God. Right? Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there's no mention of offering incense to God. Because why? Because God is not localized in a particular place, isn't it? Right? The only incense is symbolic and that's in the book of Revelation where, it, where God is localized, in a sense, symbolically, and it represents the prayers of God's people. Uh, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul who prayed for people night and day, uh, and we are called to pray for people night and day. And that's how we do that, isn't it? Of course, the ultimate prayer is Jesus, who mentioned earlier, he's the great high priest who is always praying for us. Uh, and so that is the, that's the fulfillment of that. Uh, there's another New Testament connection. It's a bit less direct. I'll come to it later. Go to the next one, the census text. And we see in verses uh, 11 to uh, 16 uh, that the Lord gives instructions to Moses to give an offering to him for everyone who's counted in a future census. Right? This is atonement money. Money is paid to God for each person who's counted, rich or poor, whatever, same price. Okay? Because what is it saying? It's saying these people actually belong to God. 
Right? You count them, they actually belong to God. Right? So many years later, David would be in trouble with God for conducting a census. Some of you remember that. Uh, because it seems that uncharacteristically, he counted them as his people rather than God's. Uh, and that's an important thing to remember, isn't it? Uh, among leaders today, we obviously we don't pay atonement money or anything like that, but those in our care, whether they're in our growth groups or whether they're in our kids' church classes or in our congregations or even in our families, they're our people are not our people. They're, they're God's people. I remember that. Next thing is the bronze basin in verse 17 to 21. Another piece of furniture. Uh, and you hear bronze, you know where does it belong? It belongs in the courtyard. right? Uh, and you can see from the courtyard, there it is, between the the altar and the tent of meeting, and there's the bronze basin, and it's a big basin like that for the priest to wash their hands uh, and their feet uh, as they serve. In the New Testament priesthood, Jesus doesn't need washing because he's already clean, uh, but we are washed with water through the word. Jesus says to his disciples that they are clean because of the word he has spoken to them. In Ephesians, we read, Christ cleansed the church by the washing of water through the word. And the word there is the gospel, the message of Christ and what he's done for us. And when we trust in the gospel, then we are washed clean. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, it says we can enter the holy places through Jesus, having our bodies washed with pure water. Right. We're getting there. Next section, anointing oil and incense in verse 22 to 38. Uh, God gives Moses authorized recipe for the anointing oil and the incense. Okay? And he says, these are the only recipes you can use. And at the same time, you can't use his recipes for anything else. Okay? There's some kind of patent on them. Right? They are holy, kept special for God. The most interesting thing I think about the recipes is from a New Testament perspective is in verse 35. Look at verse 35, where the incense is seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. And if you, someone who really knows your New Testament, you notice this phrase is picked up, isn't it? Uh, by the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. Uh, and he's talking about our speech when we talk to unbelievers. This is what he says coming on the screen. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, make the best use of your time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, our New Testament worship to God involves how we speak to non-Christians. But it is so graciously and wisely and point them to Christ, and that is, that is how we do our priestly work. Uh, part of our worship, our sacrifice, our offering of incense to God, that's, that's how we pray, but it's also how we speak. Uh, to, to, to other people. Uh, two more things uh, before the end of this section. Uh, Oholiab and Bazalel uh, at the beginning of chapter 31 is the first one. Right? In chapter 31, uh, verse, one, verse 2, God says to Moses that he has called, he has chosen this guy, Bazalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to do all the things he needs to do uh, to construct and design this tabernacle. He also made an assistant for him, a Holiab, and appointed him uh, and other men to do this work. Uh, and that's the same thing in the New Testament. God still gives gifts to his people to do his work. God fills his people with his spirit to speak his word and therefore do the work of building the temple of his people. We'll come back to that temple of his people thing a little bit later on. And then finally, well, in verse, well, actually not quite finally, yeah, when a speecher says finally, you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. All right? 
The next thing God says in verse 12 to 17, he comes to the Sabbath. And we've got to the, we've got to the, uh, the butter, isn't it, in the sandwich. Right? And God repeats the Sabbath command. Israel is to keep the Sabbath holy. God is the one who, so they know that God is the one who makes them holy. God commissioned the tabernacle so he could dwell with his people, that they can enjoy rest together. And part of that Sabbath was being, enjoying being part of God's people. And you break the Sabbath, you're saying you don't want to be part of this. Right? And so just as the tabernacle points forward to Jesus, the Sabbath points forward to the ultimate rest that we find in him. And finally, in verse 18, when God has finished speaking to Moses, he gives him the two stone, he gives him the two stone tablets upon which he has written the Ten Commandments. Right, and these are the tablets that are meant to go into the ark. But next week, we will see that something happens instead. And this thing will threaten this whole enterprise and even endanger God's plans to dwell among his people. You have to find out next week what it is. So, as we've come to this last chunk of Exodus, we've begun to see what this book is really about, haven't we? Because if you thought that Exodus was just about God saving his people from Egypt, then you only got half the story. He saves them for a purpose, and the purpose is that he might live among them. So he could bless them, so that he can rule them, that they can be eventually his people in his place under his blessing and rule. He wants to live with them. He wants them to enjoy his rest. In Israel's history, the, tab the tabernacle will later be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem uh, with a similar design. And the temple would be the place where God's presence dwelt. In the New Testament, that temple is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Uh, in John's Gospel, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt is actually tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the true tabernacle. Destroy this temple, he said, and I will raise it up in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. Right? So we no longer have the Ark of the Covenant. We no longer have the tabernacle. We no longer have the temple. But actually... We don't need them anymore because Jesus is the reality to which all these things point. We don't meet God in a holy place anymore because Jesus is the holy place. We meet him in Jesus. Right? The presence of God doesn't dwell in church buildings like it dwelt in the tabernacle or in the temple. That's why we don't call the place where we meet a sanctuary. You've heard people call it the sanctuary, haven't you? Many, many different churches, they all call it sanctuary. Right? Church building. If that's you, stop doing that because... It's not like a tabernacle. Right? The presence of God is found in the person of Jesus. And that's why I can't say in this passage, well, God told Israel to take voluntary contributions for the building of the sanctuary, so we need to take voluntary contributions to extend the multi-purpose sanctuary here. Right? No, no, no. Uh, I'll be misusing Scripture if we do that, don't I? Right? The real sanctuary, the real temple is Jesus. And that was built by God without our help. But there is another sense in which the word temple is used in the New Testament. And that's used of us. We are, well, we already talked about we are priests. Now, we are the temple as well. Uh, we are God's temples individually because God's spirit lives in us. And we are God's temple corporately, together. Uh, 
And that is the temple that we are involved in building right now. It's not a physical building, it's a spiritual one. Ephesians 2 tells us that in this temple, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Right? He's the one who's got to be absolutely, absolutely perfect because everything goes there. this way, this way, this way, all comes out based on him. And the foundation of this temple is the apostles and the prophets. They are the ones who gave us the first layer of the gospel upon which the rest of the temple is being built. And this temple is still being built as more and more people come to know the Lord Jesus. And it gets built stone by stone as the gospel goes out and people come to know him. And people trust in him and his death and come to know him as their Lord. And in the meantime, this big universal temple is expressed in the local church. That is the people, not the building, which is in a lesser sense also the temple. Right? And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, don't you know that you're the God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. Uh, and the church is built as the word of God is proclaimed in love. Now, so in a sense, we are together, God's temple. Jesus is with us. God is with us by his spirit in our midst as we do, as we meet. And like Aholiab and Beelzebub, like the people of Israel, we are involved in building this temple, or like they built the tabernacle. And we use the gifts that God gives us. We contribute our resources on a voluntary basis. We all do those things for the building of God's people. But one day, we will be with God in the new creation. That is the final destiny of all those who trust in Jesus. And in Revelation 21, this new creation is pictured as a city, the new Jerusalem. And you remember how the most holy place was a perfect cube? This is the only other structure in the Bible that is a perfect cube. And in that city, symbolically, you see gold, gold, gold everywhere. So what's it saying? It's saying that that is just like the most holy place. There's no temple in that city because God himself is the temple. Right? We live in him. Our intimacy is with God. And we'll finally experience the ultimate rest, enjoying what we're made for, that is perfect relationship with God and each other once more. And all the things that this tabernacle was pointing forward to, that is for food in Christ, will be ours in reality. We will be God's people in God's place in his presence forever. And nothing can be better than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus is our perfect high priest who gave himself for us, the once and for all sacrifice, whoever lives to intercede for us. And we thank you that in him we too have become your priests, who make you known and who express our worship to you in our prayers and in the way we speak to other people. We thank you that Jesus is your true temple, and we thank you that in him we meet you and we are able to have access to you. And we thank you that you have made us your temples and together that you have made us your temple. And we pray that you will help us as we build according to your blueprint. And our Father, we pray that you help us to be people who keep on approaching you only in the way that, that you have taught us to, not trying to make it up ourselves, but, to, but coming to you in, with, and through Jesus.
And we pray that you help us uh, to be constantly looking to your Son and constantly marveling and being so thankful uh, for the way that he has fulfilled uh, all your, not just your promises, but all the, all the types and all the other pictures that you've given us in the Old Testament. Thank you for the freedom that we have in him. Thank you for the access that we have to you in him. And we look forward to the day uh, where we will be uh, in your immediate presence, uh, in that most holy place of the new creation, loving you and enjoying you forever. So hold us fast, we pray, and keep us looking to our high priest, and keep us living as your priests in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.